But this morning we're going to start a brand new three-week series in the book of Hebrews, specifically in chapter 12. And chapter 12 is my favorite text in all of Scripture. I absolutely love it. I remember on October 7th, 2009, hearing this text for the first time and how it changed my life for forever and for good. As you turn to chapter 12, I just want to just walk through real quick because I, I want to encourage you. We're spending three weeks in this chapter alone. There's 11 other chapters before this and another chapter after. We're not going to walk through this. I encourage you to spend time throughout your week marinating just in God's word, allowing his word to speak to you because Hebrews is an incredible book of promise, of truth, rich theology about who Jesus is and who we are. Just to summarize with you just what happens in the 11 chapters, what's going on is the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who he is, is writing to an audience who's Jewish, Jewish background. They are Christians now. We know that the writer himself came from the same background because he can relate to them. He can connect with them on over certain things that they are going through. He's not writing to a Gentile audience. He's writing to a Jewish Christian audience. And these Christians are first century Christians. They were not eyewitnesses to Jesus. So their, their testimony is based off of someone else's testimony who's been preaching the gospel to them. And for 10 chapters, the simple message is Jesus is better. That's, the, that's how I can summarize the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He spends his time focusing on how he's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Jacob. He's better than the great high priest. He is our great high priest. He can relate to us. He can sympathize with us. He's simply better. And the reason he's communicating this to these people is that these individuals, these Jewish Christians, were facing persecution unimaginable to us. They weren't facing persecution from Rome or from the Greek world. They were facing persecution from their Jewish, back, from their Jewish brethren, their neighbors, their family. They were being persecuted. They were being imprisoned because they had left the Jewish faith, that they were now following Jesus and identifying as a Christian. And all their Jewish brothers were like, what are you doing? This life is so much better than anything that Jesus guy has to offer. Come back to us. We'll stop persecuting you. If you join us, if you conform to our way of thinking, if you follow our laws, it's so much easier to follow these commands than just simply follow a person who you all claim was dead and is now alive. That's what's happening here. And he writes, Jesus is better. Well, then we get to chapter 11. In chapter 11, we get this beautiful section of Scripture affectionately called the Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith is a name after name. Moses, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Sarah, Ruth, you, you name it. They were listed there because they have set amazing examples of faith. They set examples of faith. Even he writes in verse 6 of chapter 11, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And he rewards those who seek him. He says, these individuals have had faith. They've had faith, and this is what God wants. Faith in what is coming. Faith in what is promised. But about these individuals, he writes this at the very end, verses 39 through 40. And all these, all these names who have come before, though they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They had faith in what God was going to provide. He was going to provide for them a perfect sacrifice, a perfect person named Jesus. But no person listed in all of chapter 11 ever saw a fulfillment of that promise. They never saw the Messiah in flesh, but they believed that he was coming, that God provide, would provide something better. And their, their faith was vindicated 
when the cry of an infant baby was heard in Bethlehem, when they heard that the Messiah was now here, their faith, all that they longed to see, all that they longed to see what was promised was now fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. When we come to chapter 12, the author reaches the climax of his letter. Everything is building up to this point. Eleven chapters, eleven chapters of argument, of just pointing to the fact that Jesus is better. All these examples of faith. He gets to chapter 12, this is it. And he shifts his focus from Jesus is better to how your life should look as a believer then and how it should look like a believer today, how we should endure pain and how we should endure discipline. So as you jump into chapter 12 today, the message I want you to hear today is that there is purpose in pain. There is purpose in pain and joy beyond it all. We walk through this life beat down and burdened by pain. The message I want you to hear today, there is a purpose for it, and there's joy beyond it all. The goal of today's message is to lean into that simple idea of enduring pain and walking through discipline. And to challenge each of us to possibly have a new perspective of what we are going through, the trials that we are facing. The writer is going to use two analogies, two, two analogies to stir up our imaginations to better understand this idea. The first is this image of a race. Let's read chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It says, therefore, after all the arguments, after all the, the things I have given you, therefore, he says, I want you to take a step back a step back from your pain, a step back from your circumstances. Have a 30,000-foot view as you see the bigger picture of your life, the bigger picture of God, the bigger picture of what is going on here. Therefore, step back and see what is around you. And he gives us this beautiful image of almost like an arena filled with people. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run. So just think back to, I know the Olympics were different this year. We didn't have full stadiums, but, you know, I was talking to Mike Corner earlier. I saw, like, football stadiums yesterday, like, packed, right? You saw hundreds of thousands of people in Michigan. It's crazy to see stadiums like that again. That's the image I want you to see for a second. Imagine a massive stadium filled with thousands of people. Who are they? All the examples of faith he listed in chapter 11. And all the faithful and obedient men and women who've gone before but they're not passive witnesses to your race alone. While yes, they are spectating, watching you run your race, they are more importantly faithful witnesses to the faithfulness of God. They are witnessing what he has done for them. They are living proof of what it means to have faith and to endure this life. We are surrounded by this massive arena of these faithful witnesses. The writer gives us this image of us running this race, and I want to be very clear, the purpose of this image is not to communicate a message that you simply have to run harder. I'm not going to stand before you and say, run harder. Or I hear some of our track parents, run it like you stole, like run it like you stole something, right? 
That's not what I'm trying to communicate here today. That's not what this writer's trying to communicate. It's not even about running faster or being stronger. Only the strong will survive. Only the strong will finish. It's not even about running faster or further than the person next to you. If we were to read this text in the original language, this was written in Greek, so let's throw off our English translations for a second. Because in our English translations, no matter which one you're reading, you actually find a lot of exhortation, a lot of encouragement. Where in the original language, there's only one command. There's only one exhortation. And it breaks down this way. Simply, simply this. Let us run. That's the only exhortation here. And here's how the structure breaks down. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, throwing off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles us, through perseverance, let us run. Let us run. The race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's the encouragement. That's the challenge here today for them and for us. Let us run. And if you desire to run this race that we are on triumphantly and effectively, there's a couple of things we have to do based off this text. First, there are certain areas of life that must be rejected and put to death. There are certain areas in your life that must be rejected and put to death. Sin and death are going to do everything, Satan himself, to ensnare you and entangle you, to prevent you from running this race. It would be foolish of us. It'd be foolish of me as a pastor to say, you prayed a prayer when you were nine. Great. It is a daily decision, a daily work of obedience to put to death the sinful nature of our flesh. We are to crucify ourselves, crucify our desires, crucify our sin with Christ. It has to be put to death. Recently, I heard Matt Chandler, you've heard us say his name a lot. We, we admire him and we're thankful for him. Last Sunday, he says, we must be violent towards our sin. When was the last time we were violent towards our own sin? We love to be violent about everybody else's, amen? You don't want to say amen to that one. We love to be violent towards everybody else's sin. We love to cross-examine, not self-examine. We love to hear pastors stand up here and preach about condemnation, about sin. But if you dare speak about that person's sin, don't you do it. We don't like to acknowledge our own sin and crucify our sin and put it to death, but you can do it everybody else's. It's a daily work of obedience. And listen, to run freely, you want to run this race freely, you have to run free. You got to be free. You must not possess anything in this life that's going to hinder that run, that is going to hinder your ability to run towards Jesus. We'll come back to this part in a moment. The second thing, we need to embrace discipline and pain as we strive forward. Could it be we have a long misunderstood the troubles and difficulties we go through in this life? Could it be that we've misunderstood the very trials that we face? How is it that when Jesus spoke of troubles, he promised us his presence? Yet when we are in trouble, that's the very last thing we think of. How is it possible that James, Paul, Peter, Jesus, all of them spoke about trials and said we should count it as joy? Yet the Christian faith is marked by being people being miserable, hopeless, angry. The writer will continue on this idea a little bit further, but I want to just say something first. 
You will. Jesus said it flat out. You will face troubles of many kinds. It's not even a matter of if. It's a matter of when. You all know that. We are humans. We know what it means to face trouble. But I think there's three primary ways we face trouble. First, we will face troubles naturally from living in a world that's falling apart from sin. We live in a broken world that is literally falling apart, decaying because of what sin has done to it. We're going to face sin and death, illness, sickness, because this world is literally falling apart. Secondly, you will face the circumstances of someone else's sins and choices. Every single one of us are living proof that the choice that was made in Genesis 3 that brought sin into the world, we live in those circumstances now. But more than that, you are probably here today carrying a burden that was not your fault. Somebody else made a choice. Somebody else chose sin, chose their pleasure. It's easy to see why, even like you just, it's sad to see the amount of, of abuse that's going on in our world today. And the many people who are living after that, that was not their fault. But somebody else chose power. Somebody else chose to abuse their influence and take advantage of somebody. And now they're going to live out in the circumstances of someone else's sins. The third thing, you will face the consequences of your own sin. Always. It's easy to believe that the sins we have in the dark will remain in the dark, but everything comes to the light. Everything. You may not face the consequences of your decisions and your sins tomorrow, but Christians, hear me, you still will be judged before God. It's easy to judge the world, but we must remember, even as Christians, we will still be judged for our choices and our sins. Today is not a pep talk to feel better about embracing pain. Pain's fun. No, it's not. It's hard. It's difficult. We hate it. But today's message is to challenge us to rise above the pain, to rise above the circumstances and above the consequences and see what God is doing and give us a better perspective of the bigger story to look at, which leads us to the third thing. We must have a right view of Christ and ourselves. We must have a right view of Christ and ourselves. Understanding who we are and who we are not is pivotal. Spoiler, I'm sorry. You will never be your own savior. It's not happening. There's, not amount, there's no amount of work. There's no amount of sacrifice. There's no amount of any good will you have that will save you. Your spouse will not save you. Don't you dare put the expectations of a savior on a spouse. I promise you, if you do that, you'll be disappointed, and so will they. You can't put the expectation of someone to save you on a friend, on a relationship, on any good thing in this world. Nothing will save you outside of Jesus. Because all of us, all we will ever be is a wretched sinner who needs to cry out for mercy and grace and love. Which is the reason we look to Jesus. So after all the examples of faith in chapter 11, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, all these faithful men and women, while yes, we can imitate them, he says something better has come. We don't fix our eyes to Isaac. 
We don't fix our eyes to Abraham. We fix our eyes to Jesus. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. We look to Jesus first and foremost. He's already run the race that we're trying to run. He came, God in flesh, as us. He moved into the neighborhood to experience life as you and I do, to experience pain, to experience loss, to experience tragedy, to experience a broken heart, to experience the joys of life. His life was marked by joy, but also by sorrow. He had life, but he also had pain. But he shows us in his example, in a way that no one else could, what it means to endure this life. It says the joy that was set before him. Listen, the joy that was set before him was not the cross. There's really nothing joyous on that cross. The joy that was set before him was not a tomb. The joy that was set before him was not death. The joy that was set before him was him ascending back to his father, being back in the very presence of God and being seated at his right hand, reigning in victory, reigning in all authority and ruling for all eternity. That was where his joy was. And because that's where his joy was, he could endure all things in his life. He endured the betrayal. He endured the mocking. He endured the denial. He endured the agony as he fell on his face and said, Father, if this cup could pass from me as he's sweating drops of blood. It was only then, because of the joy that was before him, he could say, not my will, but yours be done. Because he submitted to the will of God. He could endure in the final, day, the final moments after that, the beating, the mocking, the bruising, the crushing, and the life that was being ripped away from his body. I love what it says that he was able to scorn the shame of the cross. Listen, there is no death in this world more shameful than crucifixion on a cross. It was meant to humiliate a person and drive home a, a, a point that if you, were, if you break any law, this could be you. It would instill fear in the average citizen and drive shame into the person on the cross. Their bodies publicly, naked, on a cross, bloodied, beaten, hanging there until they suffocated and died. Nothing was more humiliating than that. But it says here that Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. What does it mean to scorn? It means to treat something as insignificant or of little consequence. That Jesus himself looked at the cross, he saw the shame of the cross, and he considered it insignificant, of little value compared to the joy that was coming. Meaning, he's like, that's, what's, that's, what's, that's, that's what I have to face? Bring it on. My joy is coming. That's not my joy. My joy is on the other side of that pain, on the other side of that grave, and on the other side of that empty tomb. So bring it on. And he scorned the shame of the cross. It no longer had the significant value that, he, that the world tried to put on it. His humiliation led to his exaltation. So in light of this extreme humility and this extreme measure of endurance, what do we do? Verse 3, consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So in your fight against this pain, in your fight against this shame, in all this trial, Consider Jesus, who endured everything, so that you know that you have the ability to endure it as well, and you will not need to grow weary or lose heart. So the first image is this image of this beautiful race. 
The second is this image that we see in verses 4 through 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, and this is from Proverbs, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. And no discipline seems pleasant at this time, or at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces harvests of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So the second image that we see is this idea of fatherly discipline. As a father disciplines a child, and he starts off from the very beginning, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. What he's doing here, he's actually comparing their struggle with the struggle of Jesus. Why is it, why is it similar? Because both are on the receiving end of sinful persecution. And he says here, you have not yet gotten to the point where you've had to resist so much so that you've had to shed your own blood. And he's saying, look, Jesus has already shed his blood for you. You don't have to do that. You can endure. You can have strength because of what he has done. And the point he's emphasizing is he's endured everything by pouring out his blood, his own life's blood, so they can endure in the lesser persecution that they are facing. He's like, hey, your persecution you're facing is difficult, I know, but you are not having to crucify yourself for a world. He's not making light of their circumstances. He's just trying to challenge them to see that they can endure because of what Jesus has done. And he points to this loving father disciplining a beloved son or daughter. And this idea would fall on on the original audience in a very different way than it does now. In 2021, sometimes we get a very different idea of what it means to discipline a child. We all have different opinions on what it means to discipline a child. But also we have people who are growing up with with an absent father. That changes how they view this story. We see stories of kids growing up with abusive fathers. That changes how we view this story. So just for context sake, I want to just show you what we're actually speaking about here. In the Greco-Roman world, in the Jewish world as well, the father was the primary educator, instructor, and the one who would discipline a child. It fell on them to train up a child. You go back to Deuteronomy, or excuse me, yeah, Deuteronomy, or Proverbs chapter 16, which were, they were called to raise up a child in the way they should go. So when they grow old, they're not depart from it. The purpose of discipline was for the sake of their maturation. Instructing a child, bringing discipline when necessary. But the painful discipline that we were talking about here that he says is uncomfortable, unpleasant, is not the abuse that we talk about in today's world. It's talking simply about the simple disappointment of not getting our way. 
How many of you ever get upset when you don't get your way? None of you. Great. You guys are a lot better than when you appear on Facebook sometimes. We are very uncomfortable when we don't get our way. We don't like it. That's what he's referring to here. The painful consequences when a child experiences life because he did not listen to the Father's instructions. You Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You know, as a parent, what is best for your child. Your two-year-old doesn't. I know that from experience. Tony, you think my daughter's an angel? I'm, no. Um, sorry, Sadie. But it's true. You as parents, you discipline and you instruct your children so that they would grow up. I'm thankful for simple lessons my parents gave me. I shared this in the first service. My favorite one, I have two older brothers. I heard both my parents say, they told both of them never to touch the stove. When I came around, they're like, go ahead. I never did it. You know why? I literally watched my brothers touch the stove even they were told no. My parents knew better. They knew what harm. They didn't understand it as a kid. In the same manner, we go through discipline. We don't understand it. We not like it. But it's all for our development. Two points to be made here. First, the trials that we go through are for the maturing of your faith. It's for our faith. So we can grow up in holiness. So we can grow up in God. In the same way that you see your children growing up, making mistakes but learning from them, we realize that we are experiencing this life in discipline for the sake of growing up, for maturing, to moving on to sanctification and for holiness. We go through the things in this life for a reason. Verse 11, it says, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The very discipline we go through is producing a season of righteousness, a harvest that's ready. So this is the second point I want to share with you. God can redeem our darkest stories for our good and for his purposes. We all have a story. We all have a story of intense pain, intense suffering, intense discipline. We think, how could God ever redeem that? I know and trust and believe that he can. You know why? Because 2,000 years ago, he redeemed the darkest day in history as God in flesh was being crucified on a cross. And if he can do that to the darkest day, I promise you he can redeem any moment in your life. It's amazing to see what happens when the people of God believe this. And they're no longer burdened by their dark history. They're now able to use that very story, use that very history for the purposes of God and for the, the mission of God as they now have a story to tell to a broken world who can, who can relate to that, who can experience life with them. I promise you he can redeem all of it. But what do we do with these two images? This, this race that we're set to run and this idea of being disciplined by a father. What are we supposed to do? bring you back to the main point I shared earlier, we need to remember there is purpose in the pain and joy beyond it all. Purpose in every pain. There's purpose in all pain and joy beyond it all. In our Christian world, we typically, myself included, have a terrible perspective when it comes to discipline, to hardship. Above all else, what do we do? We cling to what is comfortable. We cling to what is known. Where, we've come, where we come from, we cling to our tradition. Because all, above all else, the one thing we don't want to do is be uncomfortable. 
We don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like losing our pleasure. We don't like losing our glory. We want what's good for us. An example that came to my mind as I was preparing for this, parents, all of us together, and even grandparents, all of us, we are very critical of other parents. Do you agree? We're very critical of other parents. And the, new, the, the terms that we use now, we have helicopter parents who are constantly hovering over their kids, making sure they're doing everything right. We have lawnmower parents, or some call them bulldozer parents, who they're going to do everything for that child, do their homework, do their chores, so that kid doesn't have to experience shame, rejection, hardship. You've heard these terms, maybe. And we're very critical, and we see that happening. The sad reality, this is exactly what we do to ourselves. We bulldoze our lives trying to rid ourselves from any pain, any discomfort, any shame, so I don't have to feel. We go to the extreme measures to numb it by abusing our bodies, mutilating our bodies. I don't want to feel that pain, so I'm trying to remove it, trying to block, block myself out so I don't have to think about it. We coddle ourselves. We nurture ourselves, and in all in an attempt to avoid discomfort, to avoid pain, all while allowing sin to control our lives. Now, I'm not standing up here and saying you should just rush into pain. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I am telling you that if that is our perspective, which I think it's a lot of our perspectives, myself included, we have a bad perspective of pain. And when this all happens, when we face difficult trials, when they all come our way, what do we do? We act surprised. We act surprised when we face difficulties. We act surprised whenever we see things happen in our lives, and then we act entitled. We act entitled and we become individualistic as though I am the first person to ever experience that kind of pain. I own the corner market on that kind of pain. No one else can have this kind of pain. This is my pain. No one else knows what I'm going through. When we do all this, we often just turn a deaf ear to the Lord who's speaking tenderly to us in those moments. For example, I love what C.S. Lewis said, that God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I love that. Let me say it again. God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He's calling us to wake up. He is using the, the very circumstances that we are in to communicate something special to us. We cry out and complain. We cry out in pain. We moan. We make noise. We post about it. As we suffer emotional loss, we suffer a bitter sense of rejection. And we ask God, where are you? In the midst of my problems, God, where are you? I know they have problems over there in Afghanistan. I know they have problems in, in Haiti. But right now, God, where are you in my problems? You should be bowing down to me and tell me what I have done wrong. What do I need? God, fix my life. Fix my problems. We've become very demanding of God to fix things. And we start speaking the very language that we want him to speak to us. It's okay. I got gotcha. you. Don't worry. It's all good. We good. We good now. We comfortable again. This is not the language that he speaks to us, though. 
This amazing thing is the language of pain and sorrow is a language that God knows fully well. He knows fully well because he was willing to send himself in the form of a baby, Jesus, to, to grow up. And I know scripture jumps 30 years, but he did have a teenage life, okay? He didn't just jump from three to 30. He experienced life as you and I experienced life. Loss, rejection. He lost his best friends. His best friends denied him. His other friends persecuted him and betrayed him. There's no language he knows better than pain. He understands it as he took all the pain of the world upon himself. Yet in the midst of that pain, in that sorrow, he found the strength to move forward. Just picture that again. He's bowing before the Father, weeping in such agony as he's sweating drops of blood, not wanting to go through what he's getting ready to go through. The pain, the torture. But he had a resolve to view the joy. He had resolved to rise above the pain, to rise above the sorrow and move forward. So imagine your life. I know for some of you, life is beating you senseless right now. It's like everywhere you turn, it's more heartbreak. Everywhere you look, it's more pain, more suffering. You're like, God, where are you? He is right there on the ground next to you, willing to take that burden, to shoulder it so you can stand up and walk with him. We can do the same because the same father that comforted Jesus in the garden is the same father that comforts us as his children. I know it does not make sense that we are disciplined by our father at times, but the simple fact that we are his children is everything. We have been called his children. And in that discipline, it's all rooted in love. That same spirit that went into that tomb and breathed life into that body that, ra that raised him up from the dead is the same spirit that is now alive and well in you, ready to put you back up on your feet so you can run. So what do we do? What, what do we, where do we go from here? The first thing, the same exhortation as was clear in this entire passage, I say to you, let us run. Let us run. But let's, not, let's stop attempting to run with all the baggage and burdens we are trying to carry. The burdens you carry will not allow you to finish this race. You're being pulled down in every direction. You're being entangled. You're stumbling. You can't carry any of this stuff. Listen to me. If you believe that you can experience all that Christ has to offer without following him, you have deceived yourself and you are not understanding the cross. Following Jesus means living like Jesus. And sometimes that means enduring hardship like Jesus. So if you're like, I want, I want to experience all that Christ has to offer, but I don't want to experience the pain, you've misunderstood Jesus. I want to experience all that he offers. I don't want any sorrow or rejection. He says the world will hate you if you love me. I know some of us can't live without people liking us. He says, here, I want you to follow me, and you might be hated because of my name. We got Run. Let's run. Which is the second point. Listen, you cannot run freely unless you are truly free to run. 
You cannot run freely unless you are truly free to run. What is it today that you like, I got to get rid of this now? What baggage, what burden, what sin is weighing you down to the point you're like, I can't, I can't, I can't imagine running. I can't even power walk. I, I, I can't even crawl right now. Because life is weighing you down and beating you senseless. Is it sin? Is it the sin of lust? Greed? Hatred? Gluttony? Pride? Arrogance? Gossip? Abuse? Neglect? The sin I have to lay down is blank. Fill it in. Every single one of us have to. It's a daily decision. But listen, it's not just even the, the sinful things of this world that can weigh us down. I promise you even good things can. Good things in this life will distract you from the call of Christ. Examples. The amount of time that you spend. There's a lot of great things you can spend your time doing. But so easy, those very things you spend your time doing become idols. And they block out and distract you from God. And when God whispers into your ear, when was the last time you spent time with me? Your energy. God's given us this ability to wake up every single day, to pour out our energy into things that we love, like our jobs, our mission, our schooling, all great things. But very quickly, those things have become idols as well. Your passions. We are a very passionate people. We love to talk about the things that we're passionate about. But again, if it's all the sake of neglecting Christ, we've misplaced our passions. My burden as myself, as a Christian, my burden as a pastor is that we would just lay aside the treasures and pleasures of this world in pursuit of the one who literally laid aside the splendors and pleasure of heaven to come to us. He literally laid it all out there. It's like the glory of heaven, mankind in need of me. I'm going to lay this aside. I'm going to come and experience life so they can have life and life abundantly. You may not experience it now. So stop looking for it all now. Stop trying to gain all the fame, all the glory, all the honor, all the treasures of this world and follow the one who laid it all outside for you. Can you imagine if we pursued Jesus with the same amount of passion and love that he pursued us? Our Christian walk would look radically different. We cannot run freely unless we're truly free to run. Next point. You cannot run this race while lying down in shame and defeat. You cannot run this race while lying down in shame and defeat. The thing that the, 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 one of the biggest tactics that the enemy, Satan, loves to use, and it's corrupted our world and it's corrupting us as well. He whispers into your ear, you're a victim. You're a victim. You're a victim of circumstances. You're a victim of consequences. You're a victim. So you should just kind of curl up in the corner, lie down in the fetal position, and just wait. Just wait for all things to be made new. You can't run if you're laying in fear and in shame. You can't do it. And maybe that is exactly where you find yourself this morning. This world is beating you down over and over again. You're like, I can't crawl. I can't, I can't, I don't even want to look up. You'll say to me, 
Scott, you have no idea what I've done. If I, if I ever walked into a church, my favorite one ever, if I walked into a church, the, the walls would just crumble down around me. Yeah, that would happen to every single one of us if we laid out our sin. <laughs> but you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what's been done to me. Listen, I don't. I don't know what's been done to you. I don't know what you've done. But listen, Jesus knows all of that, and he was still willing to die for you. But he wasn't willing to die for you so you would remain in defeat. His victory guarantees your victory. His victory does not guarantee your shame and defeat. You, we were not created. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. We were not even created to understand shame, death, sin, defeat. The simple choices of rebellion have led us to where we are today, where we understand and we see it. This broken and sinful world that we live in. But listen, we cannot run while we're laying down defeated. But we can run with Christ who's already paved the way to victory. I say it again. There's purpose in the pain and joy beyond it all. There's purpose in the pain and joy beyond it all. Whatever circumstances brought you to FECW today, here in person or online, I don't know what pain you have. I don't know. I don't know what areas of life you're being burdened by right now. But it's a universal truth that all of us are carrying burdens. But it's also a biblical truth that we don't have to carry them by ourselves. We can bring all of them to the foot of the cross. We can bring all of them knowing to Jesus that he has taken care of it. He's paid the penalty. He's taken all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our death to the grave, and he rose up without any of it with him. As we wrap up today, I want to encourage you. One, let's run. Let us run. Let's run freely. But let's look what he says in the very last two verses of our section today in verses 12 and 13. I pray this is an encouragement to you, a challenge to you and to me. He says, therefore, in light of all this, in light of the discipline as a child, in, the, in light of what God has done, we fix our eyes on him. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level the path of your feet so the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. He quotes Isaiah that Becky read from earlier. He says, I know right now you're on the ground. I know that you are carrying burdens that are weighing you down. But listen, you don't have to. You can run. You can run right now. You can run today. So he says, get up. Get up. Strengthen your knees. Strengthen your arms. Press forward and keep going because, listen, there's purpose in the pain and joy beyond it. In the same way that Jesus called those who were lame to get up and walk, he's calling a Christian community who is lame in spirit, lame in mission. Get up and walk and let's run. Let's run. We're going to close out today's service by singing a song that has been on my heart for a long time. In recent weeks, this song has been playing on repeat over and over again. It's called Hymn of Heaven. And they're going to introduce it to you, but I'm going to read some of the lyrics to you. While we long for the day, this is just my 
challenge. Listen, we all long for the day when we join the great cloud of witnesses that we just talked about. We long for the day where we can join that great cloud of witnesses and sing glory and honor and worthy as a lamb. Well, yes, that's a distant future, hopefully distant for many of us. Some sooner. We don't know. Listen to what he says. Listen to what the writer says. So let it be today. Let it be today that we shout the hymn of heaven. With the angels and the saints, we raise a mighty roar. Glory to our God who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Do not wait for eternity to begin proclaiming how great our God is. Do not wait to live in the joy that's there when we can live in it right now.